Just give it a minute. Let it breathe. Breathe? What are you talking about? Let the music breathe. Ladies and gentlemen, on a balmy January day in Chicago, and I do mean balmy, I mean 38 degrees, ladies and gentlemen, eat your hearts out, Florida. Here we are at the Griffith Conference Room in Northern Seminary Library. I give you Jeff Holesclaw, Theology on Mission podcast. And joined with me, of course, is the incomparable Dave Fitch. We're kind of switching roles today, today and pitching the topic. And Dave is pitching, not pitching, but he's going to act as the producer. So he's come up with all these uh, hand signals to tell me to hurry up, get to the point. So, you know, he's going to be doing that. That's what and I'm going to be doing. He needs to get to the point. This is what I used to tell him when he was learning preaching, and he's still holding it against me. That's what's, ha- <laughs> that's what ha- that's what's happening right now. That's quite right. Okay, but before we do that, we just want to tell everyone again, we're broadcasting here from Northern Seminary, but we're also... Partly sponsored and supported by Miss You Alliance, and they have a great new uh, gathering that's coming up May 3rd and 4th called the Young, Restless, and Always Reforming. That's May 3rd in Philadelphia. Dave, what's happening there? Well, uh, you know, here's uh, an opportunity for the Reformed group who are not to be confused with the Neo-Reformed group. Get a chance to talk about how their theology uh, shapes people for mission. And I, by the way, have been the hired gun. I've been hired to talk from a different perspective, some might call it the Anabaptist perspective, on uh, what maybe is wrong with Reformed theology. I might even say, uh, the title of my talk is going to be on Taking Christendom Out of Reformed Theology for Mission. I, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Uh, does that title do anything for you, Holslaw? It makes me go, oh, he got Christendom in a title. <laughs> Amazing. Taking I'm taking Christendom out of Reformed theology. And let me tell you something. It needs to happen, Reformed people out there. And I'm the one who might be the (laughs) right person just for the job. So we look forward to seeing you here. Uh, What's the dates again? It is May 3rd. It's in Philadelphia. Go to the Missio Alliance uh, site and hit the Gatherings tab, and you'll get all the information for May that. May 3rd, May 4th in Philadelphia, downtown at Liberty Church there. It's going to be great. I'd love to be there, but I don't know if I can swing it. But it should be good. So today, we're going to be talking about the story of discipleship. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. The story of discipleship. What do I mean by that? I mean, we need when we disciple people, we need to help them see themselves in a different story. All right, so let me give you a test case for this. When I was young, I was 18, 17 actually, I hurt my back really bad. And I could no longer do sports. I could no longer do a bunch of the activities that I love to do with all my friends running around. And so I spent a lot of my time thinking that God was punishing me for something, right? This is kind of how I was raised. If something goes wrong, God is punishing you. Uh, This bad thing happened, and so God was, was doing something. But when I got older, I told myself a different story about what God was doing. Rather, God was using a bad thing 
to do some good work in my life. And what was that? It was some of the things were learning compassion for those with chronic pain. One was uh, losing my competitive edge. Competitive well, edge. I'm still working on that. Still, yeah, because I was cooped it? up. I was cooped up, so I couldn't be yeah. competitive about everything. And then, most importantly, actually, is I learned guitar in that process, which musically led me to a lot of other uh, ministry. Uh, and so, God was doing a lot of good things in my life when I had this terrible back injury. He wasn't necessarily punishing me, but He did use it for good. And so, there's two different ways to tell a story about the things that happened. In our life. And so telling a story, so, how we tell the story of our lives is hugely important for who we think God is, how we understand ourselves. Yes. And so you're saying that discipleship is learning how to see yourself in the story. But the question is, how does one disciple someone else in that? Uh, do you tell them? Do you give them another story? Do you preach the story? How do you invite them into the story? I think this is, uh, this is where I get kind of hung up in uh, the way you're describing discipleship. Sure. So seeing ourselves in a different story, Dave always wants to be like, it's the practices. And my hands are all waving up in the air. It's the practices of a community, which I think are absolutely true. So, but how do we, how does that work? Kind of more in fine tuned and more zoomed in uh, lens. So I would say turning to Jesus, who happened to be the, the master of discipleship. Can we agree on that at least? We can agree okay, on that. Okay, amen. So at the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1, we get the story of Philip going to Nathaniel, who's the old curmudgeon, who doesn't believe that anything good could come out of where? Nazareth. Nazareth, right? That's just like, you know, can any good football come out of Canada? That would kind of be a contemporary. Uh, uh, Probably uh, the best <laughs> football, maybe even the only football, pure, so comes Philip out of Canada. goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the Messiah, and Nathaniel gives him this curmudgeonly response. And then Philip says, come and see. So then he comes and sees, and Jesus takes Nathaniel. And he implots him in a different story. Is he, when Jesus sees him coming up, he says, you are a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, what's he doing there? Is he's bringing to mind the story of Jacob, who, when he came out of the womb, was grabbing onto the heel of his brother Esau. He was a deceiver and a trickster. But later on in his life, Jacob wrestled not with other people, but with God and became the one who contended with God. And he bore a new name, the name of Israel, where we get Israelites. And so Jesus is saying, hey, even though you sounded like a curmudgeon, you are actually seeking after God. So Jesus puts them into another story. And so that was the first thing, is sometimes we, when we're discipling people, we kind of ignore the noise and try just to say, hey, you need, you're a part of something bigger. Back when you're I a part was, of something different. Back when I was in Northwestern uh, University doing a PhD, they had me go study with uh, Dan McAdams and a couple of the other narrative theorists from the uh, psychology department. So what this can easily turn into is re-narrating one's story to make it come out good according to what story. And so my question for you is how does someone get grafted into the story of God and get shaped according to his purposes versus a mechanic, or versus sitting in a room with another person self-narrating their own story to make it come out okay? Well, I think it it really comes to an encounter with Jesus. Yeah, and this is where the story of, of Nathaniel continues. So Jesus says, I saw you, you know, and that could be, you could just, that could be self narrated That could be the power of positive thinking. That could just be like, you know, like uh, filtering out the bad. But then Jesus says, well, you're amazed that I saw you under the fig tree. 
Uh, but then Jesus promises something. He says, you will see something more. You will see angels ascending and descending on who? On the Son of Man, which is Jesus himself. And so Jesus is basically saying, like, your story of Israel and who you are needs to run through me, and then you're going to see even more. So it's pushing people toward Jesus who re-narrates their lives, re-evaluates their values, re-scripts all their scripts. See what I'm doing there? He redoes all those things. He changes it. So it really is a question of are we going to live according to one story or another? But you're saying that's a bad thing. So changing stories well, is a bad thing? Well, I'm not thing? saying it's a bad thing. Here's, here's, uh, actually, changing stories, conversion is, is, is a great thing. That's conversion, exactly. Right. So changing um, a story is turning around. But here's it's conversion. I've become more and more Repentance. convinced over the last 10 years that true discipleship, and I'm talking discipleship of Christians, not just those being discipled out of the old story into a new one, happens in communities around the practices that Jesus has given us. For instance, you talk about learning a new story, that one of the most prominent ways we learn a new story is around the Eucharist, where it is narrated what God has done in Christ, in the broken body and the, uh, the cup and, and the new life that has come forth from the Spirit out of his death and resurrection. And by submitting and receiving that we become grafted into the story around the table. The practice of the table is huge. Likewise, the practice of reconciliation. Do we really want to know what forgiveness is? Well, it probably happens when you have a conflict or a moment of being uh, sinned against and you're angry and you are called by the discipler into an act of reconciliation. And you learn how to forgive. Why? Because you have been forgiven. You are now grafted into the story of what God is doing in the world to reconcile the whole world to himself. You have become part of it by learning what forgiveness not only is mentally as a concept, but by doing it and being grafted into the work of God in the world. But why? But that puts the bar really high. For people whose imaginations are so small for what reconciliation could be, for what peace could be, for what justice could be, what is the motivating factor to enter into that practice outside of the, the... The proclamation of the gospel, which is also a practice, that Jesus is Lord and he's working to make all things right, that God, and God has come in Christ to fulfill his promises, to make the world right. So God to set things has right. come to fill his promises. Where do we learn about those promises? That's the story. That is the story. And it's the so pro- proclaiming Christ is telling the story? Proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming the story, but... Uh, somehow I felt that was missing in your account of discipleship. (laughs) So getting people (laughs) into the story is a practice of discipleship so that they can understand their lives so that then they can be motivated to actually enter into the practice further. There's kind of this feedback loop. Well, they need enough information, dare I say, but really it's imagination to enter into a small practice of uh, forgiveness, per se. So like I know someone in our congregation who... After years of me saying, you just need to forgive that person. You need to move on. You're the one in bondage, not the other person. And she finally forgave. And she called me on the phone and was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better. Like, it feels so good just to kind of forgive someone and get over it. And now that's going to lead to further episodes of forgiveness, right? And so, but it took a long time for her to get to that spot. And it was really a transformation of imagination. what are you saying? I don't understand. I'm saying we need to train up people in the story, not just in the practices, because we just lead people toward practice. They might just say, that's too far out of my reach. Right. 
Okay, so what do we do when we gather on Sunday mornings? We gather to hear the gospel proclaimed over our lives and our situation. We gather to partake of the body and blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather to to praise his name and be sent out by the power of the Holy Spirit. All this to say, this grafts us into the story. But out in the world, the same practices are the occasions for the opening up to invite the presence of Christ to, for these people to enter, for anyone to enter into the story in the varied ways that God has given to us via his disciplines, his practices. I know you think I'm pushing my next book, but I really <laughs> believe that discipleship became an individualistic thing, even a one-on-one thing, whereas I believe it's part of being invited into a way of life which is dominated by the practices of the table, proclaiming gospel, reconciliation, being with the poor, being with children, the, the ministry of the gifts, and prayer, kingdom prayer. I would like to de-Christendomize your view of practices. See what I did there? I'm turning your uh, Reformed theology uh, on yourself. So I, maybe I would contend is is asking people to join into the practices at the very front end is a bridge too far for people who are totally outside of the church, who have no formation into the story. This is the same for Nathaniel. So Jesus didn't, the first couple moves of discipleship were not join the practices, do these practices, find me in the world as you do these things. It was first come and see, come and check it out. See who this guy is. Just come and see. Come and what see. does this mean, come and see? Come and for, see the for, way of life. Come the, and see. So you're saying people got to come to church. No, 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 not come to church. Before but they can get discipled, people got to come to church. This is an attractional view The covert of the attractional model of Jeffrey Holsclaw. <laughs> you finally got me to say it on record. No, but it's come and see like... Some things can only be seen. They can't be told you about, right? You can't just tell people about things. They just have to come and see. It's the whole showing and not telling kind of mentality. So uh, Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. Come check out Jesus. See who he is. And then uh, Jesus re-narrates his life for him as a first step. And then later, certainly, there's discipleship practices and challenges and things. And then there's a cycle of telling and challenging and the imagination and proclaiming and practices, those all kind of come together. But is there, for people who are brand new to discipleship, they need to be shown the story and invited into it. Right. And they need to understand that the possibility of action and reaction within their lives doesn't have to be what they've known. There could be different ways of reacting and, in and, different ways. And this is what I call... And then pro- they will begin the practices. This is what I call proclaiming the gospel. And I do believe... Uh, that it is a practice. And I do believe that, that when Jesus sends the disciples in Luke chapter 10 and, they, and he sends them out and he says, when they received, when they heard you and they received it, they received me. When they rejected you, they rejected me. He is there. He is present in the proclamation of the gospel, the proclaiming of the kingdom, which is the proclaiming of the whole kingdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the gospel. Okay, but remember, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, go be present. Go, go sit at the table. Go as lamb among wolves. Go without a purse. Go be vulnerable. Eat what's set before you. Remain at the table. And then, only after you've found a person of peace and remain, then proclaim the gospel. And all that to say that Jesus is present there in that moment. And yes, proclaiming the gospel is foundational to discipleship. But then it's... Uh, 
let's let's uh, enter into the practice. I'll give you an example. How long have I talked? Probably over more than two minutes. You're good. Okay. My favorite story about my friend who I'll call George. Everyone's named George in Dave's stories, it, by the McDonald's way. In McDonald's is that George had broken relationships with his ex-wife, with his children, hadn't seen him in three years, wasn't, hadn't seen him in Christmas, hadn't seen him for 10 years, hadn't, was, was coming upon Christmas, was again going to be without family, and, and George didn't have a home. He slept in a car. And I remember, uh, because I'd known George for probably two years, I proclaimed the gospel. I said, I believe Jesus is Lord of your life, and he's Lord of these relationships. And he's working to reconcile all things, including you and your ex-wife and your children. And he said, Dave, you don't understand. She hates me. She swears at me. She does this. He does that. If I ever go near the house, I'm going to have a warrant for my arrest. I go, George, I believe right here that Jesus is at work in this very thing. And he wants to reconcile. He's Lord of your life and he's Lord over this. Can you receive that? inserting him into another story. I'm inserting him into another story. That's the gospel. And then we could begin the process of reconciliation, which in George's case was writing a letter seeking forgiveness for some things because his his ex-wife wouldn't actually talk to him. And from then, a whole series of events happened that transformed his life. And so anyways, I think that illustrates both your point, which is, Thank you. The imagination of a new story and seeing the wretched circumstances of your life that God is the one who's in charge and at work and Lord over all things and making things right, but at the same time being invited into a practice which helps you see yourself as forgiven. George is forgiven of all the things that's going on in his past, yet he's now empowered to for, to ask and seek forgiveness. And there, hence, comes discipleship, amazing discipleship. In fact, George probably has a better understanding of what it means to be forgiven and to forgive than the average person sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Excellent. Excellent. So there's this proclamation. And so maybe you're just saying proclamation is what I meant by placing people in a different story. And then the action follows from that. And I think the reason for me why this is so important is, is there's a moment of seeing ourselves of the imagination that we need to always keep track of, that we're living in a different story uh, before we ask people to do different things. Because a lot of, I've run into this a lot. A lot of times people can change their behaviors. They can even enter into different practices. But in their hearts, their relationship with God and with other people has not changed at all. They're just doing different things. They're doing, and so they haven't effectively seen themselves in a different story. Right, the same can be done in the reverse where people just believe things, uh, and that doesn't change the story they're in. They just say certain things, and they keep living the right. life the way they always have. Right. Uh, excellent point, and, and this goes to the, you know, the real important point that preachers too often preach uh, the Bible as nuggets of truth to be owned and uh and controlled as opposed to a story to be invited into, that God is at work in the world, and we are invited to participate in this, what God's doing here, what God's doing this, what God wants to do in their lives through, in and through Jesus Christ. It's a story to be proclaimed and invited into, as opposed to here's something you can use to be a better Christian and mm-hmm. feel good about yourself. Here's something you can do in the midst of the rest of your life that you're not going to change at all. Just try doing this little thing. Right. So just to end, uh, I want to talk about Matthew 28. This speaks of discipleship, which is our theme. And Jesus is commanding everyone to go and to teach all the things that you've heard and to have people obey them. And so you have information and you have action. Uh, And so maybe would that be um, against our uh, 
focusing on the imagination and no. seeing in the practices? I, no. I, I believe, Why? I believe there's a Christendom way to, to interpret the Great Commission, and there's a, non, a post-Christendom one. The post-Christendom says Jesus never taught a new set of commandments. He never, sought, he never taught information. He taught disciplines. In fact, it says make disciples. Go and make disciples, which implies disciplines. And so his disciplines were whenever you eat, do this. Whenever you, someone sins against you, do this. Uh, when you go into a village or town, do this, evangelism. These are the practices of the, of the whenever, when you pray, pray like this. These are the things Jesus was telling us to go out and lead people into and teach them and, uh, and, and teach them what to do, how to do the Christian life in the presence of the kingdom of God. Excellent. And I would just add that Matthew 28 falls within a story. And so you can't abstract just information or different actions. We have to always remember there's a story of Jesus that we're being invited into. And every time we read the Gospels, we're being invited anew. All right. So that is discipleship. One way of looking at discipleship is helping people to see that they're a part of a different story. And then they can learn things and do things in a different way. So, Fitch. We haven't done this recently. Fitch versus Fitch, although this is not very provocative. Provoc- what did provocative. Provocative. It's well, maybe it is. Maybe it is for some people. Fitch versus Fitch. You said this a little bit ago. If you seek to emulate the Apostle Paul and Jesus, you must make church planning part of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't that be great if, if every Christian saw as part every of... Every disciple, even, we might every say. Every discipleship, every disciple, sorry, saw that a part of their... Or not just a part. What it means to be a Christian is to go inhabit a neighborhood and uh, begin the process of organizing people into the kingdom, which probably means having a regular meal at your home every week, which probably means praying for your neighborhood, which probably means reconciling the neighborhood, which probably means all those practices we were talking about. Wouldn't it be great if every disciple was a church planter? How fast, what kind of a church growth would Ooh, we church have? church growth. I like in it. North America, if that were the case. What if, here's a crazy thought experiment. What if every Christian, instead of saying, I think it's time to find a new church, or this church isn't feeding me. What if their only other option was, I guess I need to go plant a church. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we'd have to get out of people's minds what it means to plant a church. It doesn't mean to launch a service for uh, 352 people at the first Sunday, have a rock band that uh, you have to pay, uh, I don't know, $1,000 a week for. Uh, no, it would be the simple practice of meeting together around a table, enjoying the fellowship, and practicing what it means to be the kingdom of God under the Lordship of Christ in this place, in this location, in this town. Let's do it, everybody. I'm ready to sign up right now. Sign Fitch up for church planting. Hey, so we should do a we should do a podcast on the difference between planting and launching churches. That'd be good. That'd be provocative. We kind of next s- podcast. I got to go to Toronto bit. for several days, and I'm looking forward to it. Everybody there in Toronto will be there at the St. Paul's Blur Street Church doing the Vital Church Planting Congress uh, Conference. Sorry, uh, but when I get back, let's do it. I'm going to be fired up. All right, uh, I already quick, am fired uh, up. Uh, on our way out, we got a short podcast today because both of us are busy with a zillion things, a lot of things going on here at Northern, which we're excited to bring up maybe in a couple weeks. But what you reading? What am I reading? What you reading? 
Tell you the truth, I don't know if you've noticed my Facebook or Twitter uh, page uh, lately, but I haven't been reading anything for like five days. I've been so busy. Oh, no. I've been so busy You're preparing in a bunch with, of talks and everything else. So nothing. I've been reading nothing. Except for the Bible, right? Except for the Bible. But I read that, <laughs> but I read that on my phone. Excellent. Well, I've been reading this new book by Simon Chan. He wrote a book called Liturgical Theology and Spiritual Theology, but he just came out with a new one, which I'm really excited about, but I've only just started. It's called Grassroots Asian Theology. Really? Grassroots Asian. Yeah, I just came across this. Maybe I'm going to assign it to a theology class next year once I finish it. But he takes this... Uh, this tack on understanding theology from the grassroots level. He doesn't have conservative or liberal. He doesn't go east or west. He doesn't do any of those categories. He just says, he asks, what does an elitist theology and what does a grassroots theology focus on? Those are his really? categories. And so, Can I borrow this book while I go to Toronto? Uh, no. And so I'm really interested. He goes through some of the kind of classical loci for theology, but he kind of speaks not from what should Asian theology teach the Western church or how does Asian theology re redo Western theology? Although that kind of shows up. He just says, this is what grassroots Asian theology thinks about, does and acts. So I'm really excited about that. So that's what I'm reading. Uh, you should read books again on the plane, maybe, or the car ride. We'll be back to you signing off. From just one more suggestion. Yes. Uh, maybe you shouldn't recommend books before you finish reading them. Maybe. I'll check in next time, and we'll see how it went. We want to know how it went. <laughs> All right. Signing off from Northern Signing Sunday. off. This is Dave For Fitch. Theology on Mission Podcast. That's Jeff Holesclaw, Dave Fitch from Griffith Conference Room at Northern Seminary.